We're in our second sermon focusing on the Lord's Prayer. Last week, we spent a few minutes looking at the verses that contrasted the righteousness of those who pray versus the hypocrisy of those who pray. And you'll remember last week, we talked about those that pray on the street corner and only for the purpose of being seen and praised by man. And Jesus contrasts the prayers of those on the street corner with the prayers of his true disciples that gather in their prayer closets for intimacy with the Father. So today we go one step further and we look at verses 7 and 8, what I'm calling the authenticity of prayer. So let's read together verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Have you ever heard someone pray before using fancy language, strong emotion, or lengthy prayers Strictly for the purpose of impressing those around them. I've been guilty of it in my life as well. We sometimes want the appearance of spirituality. So we use those phrases, those expressions, that emotion, and perhaps even we think the longer the prayer, certainly the more spiritual that person is. That's what Jesus is challenging his disciples with in the passage that I just read. Now remember as we work through these two verses that the linchpin verse, the banner verse that helps us understand the context in which Jesus is teaching his disciples on prayer is actually verse 1. I'm going to read it again. I read it last week. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have... No reward from your Father who is in heaven. So we do not pray for the praise or the reward that comes from man, but we pray because we desire, as we said last week, true intimacy with the Father. So as we work our way through these two verses today, there's two principles that I want you to keep in mind. Number one, God is more concerned about our hearts than our words. And then number two, God is also not surprised by any request that we bring before him. God is more concerned about our hearts than our words. And then number two, God is not surprised by any request we bring to him. Jesus is talking to his disciples in this passage. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, which starts off the Sermon on the Mount, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, he got off by himself, and when he sat down, he opened his mouth, and he taught the disciples, saying, and then the sermon begins. So Jesus is teaching his disciples on prayer in this passage. And he says, when you pray, and then he gives them two things not to do. Two negative examples. The first one is do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Now in the Greek, 
empty phrase is actually a verb. And it literally means to babble, to ramble, to talk on and on without ever getting to a point in a way that what it could be considered is it's meaningless. Jesus is telling his disciples, don't babble. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody or maybe even heard me preach and you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? It took him 30 minutes for me to not understand what he's saying. All right, maybe that's happened up here. Maybe it's happened to you in a conversation with somebody. Maybe you've heard somebody pray that way where they keep going and going and going, but they're not making any clear, intelligible point. That's what the verb means there. Do not babble. Jesus says, do not ramble on as the Gentiles are guilty of doing. Don't just say things for the sake of saying things. How many of you have ever heard phrases like this in prayer before? And let me just say at the outset that just because you use these phrases does not necessarily mean that you are rambling or not intentional. But these are all phrases that we use, so don't get your feelings hurt. Bless the gift and the giver. Bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. Prepare our hearts for worship. Those are all great phrases to use if we've actually thought about why we say them. But many times, those are what I call filler phrases that we put in prayers because we really haven't done the hard work of thinking about what we want to tell God in prayer. It's not that these phrases equal insincerity all of the time, but sometimes we're guilty simply of saying things out of repetition because it's the way that it's always been done. Sometimes when we gather for family worship with our children before bed at night and we read our Bible study and and we pray together, sometimes we have to slow our kids down and tell them, you don't just have to spit off your Rolodex list of the same prayers in the exact same way over and over and over again without thinking about what you're saying. So sometimes when this happens consistently, we stop and say, okay, tonight, instead of Beckett praying, then Emma praying, then Avery Kate praying, we're going to say one sentence prayers, and we're going to name one thing that we're thankful for, or one sin that we can confess, Or one praise that we can give to God. Why do we do that? So that our kids will understand it's not about just going through your punch list of things that you need to pray for. I pray for mom, dad, school, friends, amen. And doing the same thing over and over and over again. Think about what you're saying. I can remember in fifth grade Sunday school when I learned from my Sunday school teacher. She taught me this. She said, you should never just pray the same thing over and over again out of repetition without really thinking about what it is you're saying. And that stays with me to this day because I also had a punch list before I went to bed at night. And I just rolled through every possible relative I could name. And I asked God to pray or to take care of them. That's not bad, but how much of that is actually heartfelt versus how much of it is just ritual. If you'll remember when Dr. Whitney came back in May and he preached on Sunday morning and if you came back Sunday evening, he taught through his book on prayer called Praying the Bible and there's this great quote from the book. He says, the problem is not that we pray about the same old things. Rather, it's that we say the same old things about 
the same old things. That's what the Gentiles that Jesus is rebuking in this passage were doing. They were guilty of babbling, going on and on in their prayers. And here's why they're doing it. It's actually a theological reason why the Gentiles were doing it. Remember, Gentiles worshipped a plethora of gods. There were so many deities in the Greco-Roman world in which Jesus lived. And so if they could pronounce the name of a god and be emotional enough and use enough big words and pray long enough, the reason they were doing that was in hopes that it would somehow awaken the god, manipulate the god to hear their prayers. And the problem with that is that the Gentiles... These pagans, they didn't understand the real reason behind prayer. They felt like the longer they were, the more emotionally intense they were, this would cause the gods to listen to them. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, you don't have to do that when you go before God the Father. If you're in Christ today in this room, you don't have to carry on and on For God to hear your prayers. Your prayers are heard. Because Jesus died in your place for your sins and reconciled you to a holy God. Now, they might not get answered the way that you hoped. Or they might not get answered within the timeline that you wanted. And there might be unrepentant sin in your heart that is a barrier. But if you're a follower of Jesus today, you do not have to bring... Fancy language, drawn out prayers, emotional expressions for God to be pleased with you. He's pleased with you because of the righteousness of his son in you. Now the bigger question is, but what about if I don't know what to pray? I don't want to ramble on, but the flip side is I don't really know what words to use. I'm overcome with emotion. I'm overwhelmed with what's happening in my life. And I literally cannot verbalize what it is that I want to say to God. The Bible does not leave us in the dark in those moments. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27 say, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But here it is. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit will help you when you don't have those words to say. It's okay to just sit in silence, reflect on the attributes and the majesty of who God is, and allow the Holy Spirit to intercede on your behalf. Sometimes we can just sit still and pray to God. But if you're not in Christ today, perhaps you have wrongly thought, like the Gentiles that Jesus is rebuking here, That if I can only learn those magical phrases, those expressions, those certain words, and have enough emotion, then certainly God will hear my prayers. And that type of thinking is what we would call works 
works-based righteousness. It's this idea that if I do enough, God will declare me right before him. Let me try and manufacture a relationship with God. That is a man-centered approach. And salvation is God-centered. It is a free gift that he gives to us. Let me just go to church. Let me be good enough. Let me use those phrases that I mentioned earlier in my sermon. And if I do that, God will be impressed with me. And then he will hear my prayers. When in reality, when we're not in Christ, the gospel communicates a radically different understanding of who we are before faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us, alive together with Christ, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And here it is. By grace, you have been saved and, to, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This passage communicates that there is no long, drawn-out, emotionalist prayer that you can use to make you right before God. Your long prayers do not save you from your sin. The emotion that you bring in your prayers does not save you from your sin. That magical phrase does not save you from your sin. Jesus Christ saves you from your sin. So Jesus gives you permission today to not pray meaningless and lengthy prayers because it does not bring justification. Nor does it bring forgiveness of sins. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus gives the great example in Luke's gospel. Let me illustrate this. Luke chapter 18, 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
We are not counted righteous based on the length, emotion, or any fancy theological language we can bring to our prayers. We are justified through Christ's finished work on the cross for our sin. God is more concerned, brothers and sisters, about your heart as you pray to him than he is your words. And number two, God is not surprised by any request that we bring to him. Jesus is clear to point this out in verse 8. It says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Therefore, there is not a single request that you can lay before our father that is either in any way, shape, or form startles him, catches him off guard, or that he is unaware of. And if we know the attributes of who God is, we know that he is an omniscient God. Here's what that means. Let me use a theologian Wayne Grudem's definition. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. Now that's hard to process, so I'll read it again. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. So we're not bringing to God any request where we are informing him of what's happening. God does not need cable news for him to be informed of the current events happening in the world. So he doesn't favor CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. He doesn't need any of them because none of them would be in existence if he didn't create content for them to broadcast to the world. He knows what's happening in every square inch of this universe all of the time. You do not have to catch God up on what is happening. He knows it. Not only does he already know, but he is also unchangeable. The theological word for this is immutability. This means that To use another theologian's definition, Burkhoff, God is devoid of all change, not only in his being, but in his perfection, in his purposes, and in his promises, knowing then that God is both immutable and all-knowing. It does beg the question, doesn't it? Why pray? I know you're thinking that. And the answer to that is what we said last week. We pray for intimacy with the Father. We are not praying to simply get what we want. We are praying to be in communication with the one who sent his son to die the death that we deserve for our sin. Your prayers do not change God's mind. He has what we call perfect foreknowledge. And he knows all that will ever happen. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking of those texts that we often talk about. Like when Abraham and God are dialoguing about Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, well, God, if there's 50, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And then he goes down to 40 and 30 and 20 and 10. 
And we know the story. Ultimately, there is not even that many righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. So when Abraham discusses this with God, he is not bartering with God. God already knew there is not one righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. We can go through this bit, Abraham, if you want to. But I already know there are none righteous. We also have those stories like the judgment on Nineveh in the book of Jonah. God sends Jonah to preach repentance to the people of Nineveh because if they do not repent, God is going to unleash his judgment upon them. God knew that when Jonah went to Nineveh, they would in fact turn. They would mourn in sackcloth and ashes. What about those passages that we know about where some think that God is somehow regretting decisions that he has made, like in Genesis 6-6, or in 1 Samuel 15-10, when he is sorry that he made Saul king. Does that somehow mean that God made a mistake? Not at all, because he has perfect foreknowledge. Those passages cannot mean that. Because we don't serve a God who ever changes. He is immutable. If we serve a God who changes, then we are serving a God who is a fraud. Grudem explains those passages like this. These passages should be understood as true expressions of God's present attitude or intention with respect to the situation as it exists at that moment. In other words, God can fully know ahead of time that Saul will be made king in Israel, that he will fail as king in Israel, but still in that moment be disappointed in Saul without ever meaning that God somehow changed his mind or that he regretted in the sense that he should not have made Saul king. So know this, brothers and sisters, keep these two Theological truths in your mind. God is omniscient and he is immutable. When you go before him in prayer, let's say you have been told that a family member that you love has only been given six months left in this life. Terminal cancer. How should you pray for that individual? Number one, you always remember, God is sovereign, the doctor is not. Not to... Be disrespectful to doctors. God is sovereign. The doctors are not. Number two, you get on your knees and you intercede for that brother or sister with all of your human strength for God to heal them and save that family member from physical death. But number three, know that ultimately God's purpose for this family member's life will ultimately be for the praise and glory of that family member's creator who is God. You intercede like you've never interceded before. But remember that God is omniscient and he is immutable. And that no matter what happens to that family member, he will receive the praise and the glory for their life. You pray to God because when you pray, it glorifies God. How can you glorify God? The New City Catechism answers it like this. By loving him and obeying his commands and laws. 
That is how we glorify God. Praying to God is a way of demonstrating affection for God. Do you want to demonstrate love towards God? Pray to him. Talk to him. The reason Jesus includes this phrase here, that your father knows what you need before you ask him, is because he wanted his disciples to come to the Lord in prayer as they were, with authenticity. They could talk honestly. They could lament. We have prayers of lament here where we cry out to God in frustration about things that are happening, maybe in our lives or in the lives of those we know, or things happening in the world. We can cry out to him in frustration. We can cry out to him in praise. We can sit in silence. We can sob before him. Jesus is telling his disciples, you do not have to heap up these empty phrases in order to talk to God the Father. The fact that God knows what you need from him gives you the green light to come before him in authentic and transparent prayer. Now, I don't know everyone's heart in the room this morning. I don't know what you're praying for and what you're not praying for, but let's talk just for a moment about God's providence. This is another theological term. The providence of God is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. That's Paul Helms' definition. The providence of God is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. So let's think about that theological term, God's providence, within the understanding of prayer. John Flavel, he's a guy that lived a long time ago. He wrote a book, in fact it was in 1678, called The Mystery of Providence. And he addresses this very issue. He says, if providence delays the performance of any mercy to you that you have long waited and prayed for, yet see that you do not despond nor grow weary of waiting upon God for that reason. And he goes to talk about there's two reasons that sometimes God prevents these mercies from happening in our lives. Number one is it's not the proper season. That's very simple. We understand that. We pray for things and God says it's not the right time. But he also says that sometimes God prevents these mercies in our lives because we experience what he calls afflicted providences. Stay with me. God might bring difficult circumstances into our lives that actually fit with his will for us. Now, why would he do this? That's the question that we all want to know. Flavel gives five reasons. Number one, the delay of God's mercy is for your advantage, he says. Why, it is nothing else but the time of his preparation of mercies for you and your hearts for mercy, that so you may have it with the greatest advantage of comfort. In other words, he's waiting for your heart to catch up to that mercy when you can receive it at its fullest and most joyous time. 
Number two, he says, it is a greater mercy to have a heart willing to refer all to God and be at his disposal than to enjoy immediately the mercy we are most eager and impatient for. In layman's terms, sometimes the afflicted providence brings us closer to God. Number three, expected mercies are never nearer than when the hearts and hopes of God's people are at their lowest. When God finally bestows that mercy that you have been praying about, when you are at your lowest, you receive it with the ultimate and maximum level of joy. Number four, he says, our unfitness for mercies is the reason why they, why they are delayed so long. And then number five, consider that the mercies you wait for are the fruits of pure grace. You do not deserve them and therefore have reason to wait for them in a patient and thankful frame. Sometimes when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to, it could be that we are experiencing, as Flavel calls, an afflicted providence. But he closes out this entire section of the book by saying this, Lastly, consider how many millions of men as good as you by nature are cut off from all hope and expectation of mercy forever. And there remains to them nothing but a fearful expectation of wrath. This might have been your case, and therefore do not be of an impatient spirit under the expectations of mercy. Brothers and sisters, that's all of those in Christ. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. But he wants you to ask him anyways so that he will create within you a stronger intimacy and dependence on him to give you what you need. And you can trust in his providence that he will answer according to what is best for his children. And if you're here today, separated from God, living in sin, in rebellion against him, as Ephesians 2 tells us, let me call you to repentance of sin and faith in Christ alone for salvation. Because any prayer you utter to him, if you are not in Christ, it is only out of his common grace and mercy that he would even stoop down to hear you. Let's pray together. Father, I think it's important that we practice what we preach. I don't need to ramble on here, as we just learned about. May your Holy Spirit teach us more about this text as we reflect on it today and throughout the week. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.